0: Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Lord, we ask that You would apply this Your Word uh, to our hearts, to our minds, and to our lives. We ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, when I'm struggling with self-centeredness or with worldliness from time to time, I find myself thinking that it would be so much easier to be so much more to be more consistent in my walk with Christ if i had lived during the first generation of the new testament church you know being able to hear the apostle paul preach or to ask the apostle peter what it would have been like to speak with jesus face to face that seems like it would have been so encouraging for my own faithfulness have you ever had faults like that now, if I got to see the apostles perform some of their miracles, then I'd be so much more consistent in my walk with Christ. Sadly, however, that line of thinking is not sound. Even if you were one of the closest companions uh, to the apostle Paul or Peter, even if you heard their preaching or witnessed their miracles uh, with your own eyes, you would still struggle. Such is the broken condition that we live in even as Christians. The effects of sin are very powerful indeed. Even in Christians, sin remains powerful. When Jesus told the disciples in John 15 verse 5 that they could do nothing, He was speaking of their faithfulness to Him. Without Him, we would not even be able to walk faithfully with him. That's why we need to always rely upon him. Even with our new natures in Christ, unless we are sticking close to Jesus Christ, we will stumble upon the sin that so easily entangles us each and every time. And I make this point, which I've made many times before, because it is so easy to underestimate the power of sin. And even if we are aware of the power of sin in our own lives, it's easy to forget that sin is working just as powerfully in everyone else's life as well. It's tempting to think that the church is a perfect society where people go to escape uh, the temptations that are, that are out there uh, in the world. But when we gather together, we bring our sin, we bring our struggles with us. Don't get me wrong. The church is and should be a miniature picture of heaven and what it would be like to live in heaven. But at the same time, the church is also a hospital for sinners. You know, a hospital is one of the most clean places in all of society. You know, every effort is, is made to disinfect every hallway, every room. Uh, hand sanitizer is outside every door, outside every elevator. Um, but surprisingly, a hospital is the place where you are most likely to catch MRSA, uh, the, the, the virus that is one of the most stubborn infections to get rid of. Likewise, in a church where a congregation of sinners who love the Lord Jesus Christ have gathered together to live a common life in Christ, sometimes, very sadly, we're going to sin against each other. You go into a hospital looking to get, get to get well, And you end up getting sicker. And sometimes you go into a church and you have someone sin against you. It's not surprising that that would happen. We are indeed a hospital for sinners. The early church, even though they had the privilege of hearing Paul's preaching, even though they had the privilege of learning from Peter's lips and seeing their miracles, they struggled with the infectious power of sin within their congregations. In fact, most of the New Testament letters contain encouragements for the congregations to keep the bond of peace and to keep the unity within the fragile fellowship of the congregation. For instance, in Ephesians 4, 1-3, through Paul urges the congregation in Ephesus. He said, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Ephesians did not cohere naturally. And so Paul had to urge them, warn them, encourage them to keep the unity of the faith and the bond of peace. In Colossians 3, Colossians, they also had the same struggle. He said uh, to them, "...put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. In other words, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for us to continually seek the unity of the Spirit within our congregation. It just doesn't Happen. Sin happens. But love and unity always takes effort and sacrifice and selfless service one toward another. The congregation in Rome was learning this hard lesson that keeping the the the, the bond of 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 um unity within the congregation was indeed difficult divisions had arisen within this young congregation actually it'd be more accurate to say that there were divisions evident from the the very moment that the congregation came into existence the infant congregation in rome was made up of several different groups of people there were Jewish converts to Christianity. There were Gentile pagans who had converted to Christianity, and there were also Gentiles who had first converted to to Judaism before converting to Christianity. Not only that, there were very poor people in the congregation, and there were also uh, people uh, who had converted to Christ from Caesar's own household. Furthermore, there were many soldiers who had come to Christ. Many different people from many different walks of life, all with their own concerns being brought into this young congregation. This was not a group that would normally hang out together. Socially, they didn't have much in common. And there were religious customs and traditions that were, that were very important to many within the congregation that were very strange to others in the congregation. It's not an exaggeration to say that this congregation was a potential powder keg ready to explode. But in Christ's glorious wisdom, He has decided to radiate His glory uh, to the watching world by bringing all these diverse people together into one body, into one congregation. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus knew just how uh, difficult this would be, but yet He told His disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love one for another. And so Jesus is going to witness to the world. He is going to build His church by bringing together all these sinners and who have different backgrounds, who have different traditions, who have different concerns, He's going to bring them together and He's going to make them into this one congregation that are He terms His body and He is going to use this body to be His witness to the world and the leading aspect or the leading way of how He will witness to the world is by our love one for another. He knew how difficult this would be. Uh, that's why he, uh, in his great high priestly prayer in John 17 specifically asked the Father, uh, for the, for the church's unity. He said, I do not ask for these only. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be, all, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world is going to believe that the Father has sent Jesus Christ into the world, chiefly by our love one for another. In the congregation in Rome, there were some Jewish Christians that could not bring themselves to give up the ceremonial laws and the Jewish practices that they had been raised with since early childhood. They felt compelled to comply with the dietary laws and observe the various Jewish feasts and celebrations. They were not relying on these things for salvation, but still these things were very important to them. It would be like us deciding to no longer have the Christmas Eve service or the sunrise service. If we decided not to have those things, we wouldn't be breaking any of God's commandments from Scripture. But for many, it would feel very wrong for us not to have the services. And there's no... just to, to be clear, we've not had any discussions about that. So don't worry, I'm not trying to... to to. Uh, to get you ready for something later. In the church in Rome, there were also Gentiles who had left their pagan practices behind when they became Christians. Therefore, they were opposed to anything that would uh, have to do with their old lifestyles. So if it meant uh, eating meat that had first been sacrificed to a false god, well, they'd rather be vegetarians. And uh, in the ancient world, a lot of the meat that you would go down to the market and buy would have first been sacrificed to some uh, idol. And so these Gentile Christians were thinking, well, I just cannot bring myself to eat this meat if it has first been sacrificed to idols. So they decided they would just become vegetarians. There were others in the congregation who knew that the ceremonial laws And celebrations were no longer important for their growth in Christ. They also knew that meat sacrificed to a false god was still steak. And since false gods did not exist, then they could eat their steak with a clear conscience. So you have these different groups within the church. But these particular Christians were exercising their freedom in Christ, thinking that, They no longer have to abide by Jewish practices like ceremonial laws or a ceremonial diet or the Jewish calendar. And they no longer have to worry about whether uh, meat has been sacrificed to an idol. And so they are exercising their freedom in Christ. In chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says that these Christians were strong in their faith. But then because they are strong in their faith, Paul especially warns them of passing judgment on those who are weaker in their faith. And so that's what's going on here in, the, in our passage. That's the background. Look with me at verses 1-4. through 4. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. Verse three: Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Paul did not allow the ones who understood their freedom in Christ to look down in judgment upon those who did not yet fully understand the full implications of their freedom in Christ, nor their faith in Christ and so paul's patience here with these weaker brothers points to god's patience god knew how big a transition it would be for people to come to christ out of judaism god would not allow those stronger in the faith therefore to discourage those who are weaker god would not paul would not allow them to pass judgment upon them verse 4 again Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul says that the strong were not allowed to pass judgment, because if God has justified the one who is weaker in the faith, then what right does the stronger have to pass? Or what right does the stronger have to pass judgment? On the one who is weaker. This is an important point. Let's say that that we were to pull up to the front of the church, um, Tyndale Pittman. How old is, (laughs) how old are you, Tyndale? Nine or ten? Eight. Okay, eight. You have a tall father. And let's say that we were to pull up Dale Patton. One of the elders in the church, about a year ago, uh, he almost died. And through that whole experience, he kept his eyes fixed on Christ. And maybe we were to pull up Betty Darden, an example to all of us of steadfast faith in the Lord Jesus. And we had them all stand here. And we were to ask, who would be the most justified among these three before God? Well, they would all be fully justified before God. They all three look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Not, not one among them would be any more loved by God than another. And that's Paul's point. The strong cannot look down on the weaker because before God, we all stand and we only stand securely in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why he says in verse 4, Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. I'm sorry, that's verse 3. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We all stand. We only stand. And we securely stand in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this, the same goes for the one who struggles in their faith. Maybe you are hanging on to Christ by your fingernails. Maybe you feel like sin eats your lunch each and every day and that you are at the end of yourself because you know how much your sin displeases Christ. Maybe you're living in a backslidden condition and you are wondering if Christ has rejected you. Let me tell you. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. Wherever you are in your walk with Christ, if you are in Christ, you are secure in Him. You are loved as perfectly and completely as God can love you. And His love is infinite. Jesus Christ died for sinners and He was raised for our justification in Him. In Him alone is our confidence. There's another aspect to God's patience that I want to point out before I move toward the conclusion. Look in verses 5-7. through Paul says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains abstains in honor to the Lord or of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Verse 7, For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. God doesn't love one person any more than another for their doctrinal purity. It is awfully tempting that doctrinal precision is a way of recommending ourselves to God. So I could ask you, does God love a Baptist any more than He loves a Presbyterian? Does God love an Arminian any more than He does a Calvinist? It is not our doctrinal purity that is the foundation of God's love for us. He loves us in Jesus Christ. God is patient with us. This side of eternity, every one of us are works in progress. Paul brings up in verse 5 the issue of the the observance of certain days. Some believe Paul saying that there is no such thing as a Christian Sabbath uh, because in Christ all days are alike. And I would disagree with that point of view And I would argue fervently that the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day of the week, is the Christian Sabbath. And I believe that's what's taught in the Scriptures. But I would never ever break fellowship with someone else over this issue. To break fellowship over such an issue would be to disobey the whole spirit of this chapter. There are many theological differences that exist within our congregation. And our commitment and our love for each other, in spite of the differences, is a beautiful thing in the eyes of the Lord. Now there's another area that I want to address. There's an area of temptation that I especially want to address this morning. You know, we just witnessed on Friday what Ronald Reagan in his inauguration called the miracle of the peaceful transfer of political power from one president to another. This was all the more remarkable because the peaceful transfer of political power uh, from one side to the other also included the transfer of a political party, one side of the political spectrum to another. This transition is not easy. That's why Ronald Reagan called it a miracle of the peaceful transfer of political power. And the reason why I am bringing this up, I actually added this in to my sermon this morning because yesterday afternoon I was doing some reading and had the cable news on while uh, in the background while I was reading. And they announced that uh, Sean Spicer, the, the new um, press secretary for President Trump, was going to have his first press conference. So I was kind of interested in that. And so um, when he finally came out for his first press conference, it was about five minutes long and i think some of the first words out of his mouth was the press you are all liars and he charged them with being liars and uh pointed out at least two ways that they were lying and just charged in them into them for the next 4 or 5 minutes and then he left without taking any questions And my mouth was just hanging open like, Oh my goodness, what did I just witness? And then I I burst out into laughter and I turned to Mandy and I said, This is going to be a very interesting time in in our nation's history. But it it dawned on me for the next a few years, you know, there's going to be deep divisions in our country. And there are going to be there is a deep division. Uh, within the citizenship of our nation. But what Christ is calling us here is a unity that is unbreakable. And the way He is telling us to keep this unity is by making sure that we do not let side issues break our unity and don't allow ourselves to start judging one another According to opinions rather than Holy Scripture, I hope that in our congregation the Lord would be so pleased to bring as many poor into our congregation as we have economically stable people in our congregation. I'd love to see our congregation be represented by many different races. Well represented by many different races. I would love to see people from every walk of society be a member of our congregation. I would love to see people from across the political spectrum come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and join with us. The temptation will be Because our our nation is so roiled right now with political division that we get it caught up in that kind of division. We can't afford to do that. I as a pastor will not allow that to happen. Our session will not allow that to happen. It is being disobedient to Romans 14 if we allow that to happen. Now, we should be politically involved doesn't mean that we stick our head in the sand politically. We need to know what's going on. We need to be salt and light in our communities. But we must not allow anything to come between us in Jesus Christ. I see Joanne sitting out here. There's a real temptation for us to be separated today especially when the Falcons beat the, the Packers uh, and head to the Super Bowl. But Joanne is not allowed to have a grievance against me. Or if the Falcons should um, should lose, I am not allowed to have a grievance against Joanne. The, the, the unity that God is calling us to in Jesus Christ is not just a mutual tolerance the unity He is calling us to is a love that Christ had for the Father. The unity Christ is calling us to is a love that motivated Him to go to that awful cross and be willing to be stretched out and have His hands and His feet nailed to that cross. That's the kind of love He is calling us to. It is a love that we will not be able to show toward each other unless we first have learned the love of our Lord Jesus Christ for us poor sinners. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that You would help us to always pursue the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, we are the body of Christ. Now help us to shine like Jesus before a watching world. Oh Lord, help us to escape the pride, the judgmentalism, the divisions that so easily entangle. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because we know His eyes are fixed on us. And help us to run without stumbling. For his grace, by his grace and for his glory, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.